Hi, thanks again for joining us as we study the book of Numbers in our series, The Wilderness Wanderings. We're going to find ourselves in Numbers chapter 21, Numbers 21 this morning, and we're going to look at a message I've entitled, The Hard Way. Now, if you've watched any movies or TV shows, you've probably, you know, you, can, you see that situation where the bad guy or somebody finds themselves in a situation and the person looks at them and says, yo, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. And, and you hear that. Probably most of us have not been in that situation where, you know, Cousin Joey comes and looks at us and talks to us like that. But there are, there are times in life where we have learned the hard way. We could learn the easy way, but oftentimes, if you're like me, the hard way is a better teacher. I remember one time when I was uh, looking and thinking about this easy way, hard way, thought back to a, a time with my father, uh, I learned a lesson the hard way. Uh, he, we had a leak underneath the sink, and it had caused some damage to the cabinet. We had to fix the cabinet and the sink, and I wanted nothing to do with this project at all. Uh, in fact, my dad, my dad's like, no, you're going to get in here and you are going to help me. It was in between my junior and senior year. It was in the middle of baseball season. I had a lot going on and I just did the last thing I wanted to do was go work on projects in the house. I had other priorities that I felt were more important than getting a leak fixed underneath the kitchen sink and, and doing that. Well, in the process of fixing it and going through it all, uh, dad said, give me a hammer. And I was still angry and frustrated. So I grabbed the hammer out of the bag and I you know, shoved it underneath the sink and dad pulled it. When he pulled the hammer, I ripped my hand away because I was not, just not happy to be there. And uh, in the process of doing that, uh, the claw of the hammer, because I had grabbed it by the, the head rather than by the handle, uh, had dug into my hand. And when I pulled my hand away, the claw dug in and tore my flesh open. And uh, I was bleeding in the, in the middle of my hand here. And um, had to get it uh, bandaged up. Dad took some bandages and put it on and wrapped it up. And we didn't go to the hospital. We just butterflied it because I had too many things to do. I had a baseball game that night I had to catch for. Uh, it was not pretty catching during that game with the blood dripping down the hand, but we got it done. But I remember learning at that moment and later on reflecting about it. If I would have just accepted the fact that there were priorities, first things had to be done first. We had to take care of a project so that the house wasn't filling with water rather than me playing my video games or going out with my friends or playing a big game of baseball. There were things that had to be done first. And to this day, I have that reminder. I have a scar right here. And even with my hands, you, you probably can't see it really well, but I can't stretch my left thumb as far as I can on my other hand because the, the way that the, the flesh healed up. So it's just that permanent reminder to me of learning things the hard way. And when we get to Numbers 21 here, Israel is going to learn things the hard way. There is going to be a struggle in the life of the Jews for this moment, but it's, it's not going to start that way. Israel's going to learn this lesson the hard way, but let's look what happens. In verse 1, it says that Israel, um, when the king of Arad, the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard that Israel came by the way of the spies, then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoner. And you're like, oh, wow, that's the hard way. Here comes the hard things. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get a little harder, but let's, let's talk about what's happening here and set the stage for what, uh, what Moses and what God has for us to, to learn from this passage. Israel was coming by the way of the spies. Now, the way of the spies that you see down there on the, the screen there was a, a path from right around the, the oasis at Kadesh Barnea all the way up toward the Dead Sea. It was a known path. It was not, it was not necessarily this, the path that the spies took 
40 years earlier. That has come to be the part of the understanding, but they actually went up a little bit more toward Beersheba, straight up, not across. So it wasn't the exact path. It was just, it was a well-known path during that time called the way of the Atharim, if you have it in some of your other translations, but the way of the, the way of the spies. It was that familiar trade route between Kadesh and the Dead Sea region. This is also along this route is where Mount Hor Remember what happened at the end of chapter 20? Uh, Mount Hor is where uh, Aaron had been laid to rest, where Aaron uh, had went up to, and into the mountain, transition of power to Eliezer, and it had happened in there. Well, look what happens. You're going to have this glorious victory that, that occurs for Israel. It's been 40 years of defeat and despair and discouragement, and now there's going to be this glorious victory. Israel is going to be ambushed. On the way, you know, they went to talk to Edom. They wanted to go through Edom saying, no, you're not going to be able to. But somewhere in this, there, uh, there was a king from Arad, the Canaanites, which is on the map. If you look, you can sort of see uh, where it says Beersheba there. There's like a big blank spot toward the bottom. That area is the area that the king has come from. And the location is very interesting. It's right there on the map, Hormah. Uh, and you might say, well, I don't know a lot about Hormah or Hormah. Uh, but we, if you remember back to 14, chapter 14, verse 45, do you remember at the end when the first time the spies said we shouldn't go and the people are like, no, and then God said you're going to be banished to the wilderness for 40 years, and the people, a number of them said, no, let's go. We're going to go take the land ourselves. And Moses said, God's not with you. The land and the area they go to is Hormah. So it's the same exact area where they were previously, and it's where that former rebellion had taken place. So there's going to be where there was defeat. Now this next generation of Jews, remember, most of the old generation has now died off. There's still some around, but most of them have passed away, and there's this movement toward, we're in that last journey section before they're going to go into the promised land. So they're looking at this area and, oh no, here come the people who defeated us 40 years ago. What's going to happen? They ambush, the Canaanites ambush the Jews, take some of the Jews prisoner. And how, do the, how are they going to respond in this moment of adversity? Are they going to act like their forefathers? Are they going to act like themselves? What are they going to do? So they are going to do something interesting. Look in verse 2. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, if you... They're saying to God, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, my hand is the idea of our hand or Israel's hand, then I, Israel, will utterly destroy their cities. So they actually consult God rather than just going and doing their own thing. And they make this promise, this vow, this commitment to God. And they say, God, if you do this, then we will follow through and we will uh, take care of the, the people. And so you see that here. Now look what they say in verse, verse 2, the end. They say, then I will utterly destroy their city. That word utterly destroy, that's a good word to underline, to understand, because it comes up in a number of other passages. We'll see a couple in just a moment. Where the word is, the word is harem. It's often, some of your translations may have the ban on the city or utterly destroy. That is an interesting word. This here because the word harem or the ban that is talked about focuses on this. It focuses on total destruction. They're going to, they're saying that God, if you deliver our, our friends back, our family back, we will totally destroy their city. 
We will destroy their livestock. We will destroy their people. There will be nothing left. Not only is it a picture when, when someone would, when they would take this oath or this vow of the ban, or when God would say this city is under ban, the ban, this is what they meant. The cities were to be destroyed, obliterated. Not only that, there was to be total dedication. When the people made this decision, the Jews were to carry it out completely. It wasn't enough to say, we're going to do this. Okay, we're tired. Well, you know, we'll leave a couple houses and people over there. It's not a big, no. When they made this commitment, when the ban was enacted, they were to be totally dedicated to what was happening. And it also had this idea of totally devoted. The items that would be placed under ban, oftentimes the gold, the silver, the linens, those, those things that could be used in the, the uh, service of God, they would be devoted to God. Now this word comes up, and it's, it's not always utter destruction. Sometimes the word devoted comes up. Sometimes the word accursed, but it's all the same Hebrew word. In fact, if you flip back like two pages to, in your Bible to chapter uh, 16, uh, not 16, verse, chapter 18, sorry, 18 and verse 14, it says, everything devoted in Israel shall be thine. The word devoted there is harem, the word under the, the ban. So if you remember, that's the passage of taking care of the priests and the Levites. And God says that those items that are taken in, a, in the ban, they're going to be devoted to God. And the priests were going to be able to use them for ministry and to live off them as well. So they were devoted to God in his service. But, but go a little bit further. Go to the, go to the book. Well, here, uh, 18 verse 14, we see that. It would have been easier if I just flipped the, to that and we would have got the right reference right away. But go to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6, this idea of the ban helps you understand a very familiar story that's actually going to come up within a year of this time period. Within a year, they're going to be marching into the promised land, and Joshua is going to be going in. And remember the very first, the very first uh, city that he goes to in the conquest is Jericho. And God says, and, and Joshua says, this city is going to be placed under the ban. Chapter 6, verse 17. Notice that all these words, these words are going to be the same word, but look what it says. The city shall be accursed, or harem. Even uh, unto it therein only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are in the house. We remember that because Rahab was kind to the spies, protected them. But verse 18 then. And in it you shall keep from yourself, you shall keep yourself from, or not take, any of the accursed thing, the harem things, the things that are devoted to God, lest you make yourself harem, lest you make yourself accursed and you take the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. Verse 19, it says, but all the silver and the gold and the vessels and the brass and the iron are harem, but our King James says consecrated unto the Lord. So it has this idea of things that are going to be taken, devoted to God. It could be things that are going to be destroyed because we're going to separate God's people from them, like the cities of the Canaanites. And do you remember what happens in, what happens in Israel's history after Jericho? Remember Achan? What does he do? It's not that he just like looked. It wasn't wrong for the Israelites to take spoils from war. That wasn't going to be the issue. They were going to be able to do that in other places. God says, I'm going to give you houses and, and land and wells, and you're going to have the spoils of war. 
But when an item or a city was placed under the harem, the ban, it was devoted to God. It was separated for God. It was to be destroyed so that they could not taint God's people. And Achan, what does he do? He not only disobeys, but he takes the items that were meant for God, not meant for him. He took something that was under the harem, the ban. And that's why Achan and his family, and even the the camp, they suffer loss. Achan eventually and his family death because of his choice to take that which was devoted to God. So we find this idea of being devoted to God, the ban, very serious. And it comes up a whole bunch in the Old Testament, especially during the conquest. Let's go back to Numbers 21. Back in Numbers 21, what is the Lord going to do when they make this vow? It's interesting because you now have the people approaching God and probably through Moses, but it's initiated by the group that is usually attacking God. But this new generation, they go and they they see this crisis and rather than complain and murmur and bicker about it and revolt, they go to God and say, Lord, if you will do this, we will devote all this to you. So he hearkens unto them. This had to be refreshing to God. It had to be refreshing to Moses to have them actually go the proper direction to do the right and spiritual and godly thing in their life. There was by these people, there was then a personal investment. There was a personal responsibility. They were saying, Lord, this, this is important to us. And if you'll help us with this, we will be responsible. We will follow through and we will do what we have promised you to do. This is not just them coming to God and saying, God, what are you going to do about this? God, you need to fix this. No, they looked at their hardship. They looked at their situation and they said, we need to figure it out. We need to live here, but God, we need your help. We need your wisdom. It's what we ought to be praying right now as we, as we navigate these new waters of 2021. Not just like, God, what are you going to fix? You got to, you got to fix it all. Well, maybe he's given us the tools, the abilities, the responsibility, the investment to say, Lord, we want to invest. We want to be actively involved in church. We want to be responsible for the growth of our church and the growth of our members. And Lord, we want to do this. Can you help us, please? Taking some of that personal responsibility there. And what do they do? In verse 3, you see that they followed through. The Lord, the Lord hearkens to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they harem them. They utterly destroyed them. And the name of the place became known as Hormah. Now, Hormah is a a noun form of harem. Literally, the place, the area of Hormah is known as the place of the ban, the place of utter destruction. This was where the the cities, the people, everybody was haremed. They They were all put to death. The people followed through as a devotion and a dedication to God. And that seems very different to us, and it is different to us in our, our society nowadays. But that was what had happened, and that was what was happening back in that day. Now, they follow through, and you look, and it's like, okay, yes, this next generation, they're getting off to a victorious start. Now, I remember as a firstborn that I felt like often I learned the hard way. My younger siblings, my three sisters, They had it so much easier. They never had the board of knowledge applied to the seat of education. They never had it really bad. In actuality, it was my sisters were smart. They can debate that if they listen to this. They can debate if they all follow this. But for the most part, they learned from my sins, 
from my mistakes, from my consequences, and they wisely chose not to repeat them. To be honest, when they would, when they would get in trouble, I felt like this, you know, all right, the little sibling gets in trouble with the parents and you're like, yes, justice for older siblings everywhere. Because we always had it so much worse than the younger ones. There's truth that younger often learn from older. That's good. That's learning the easier way rather than the hard way. And maybe that's what Israel did. Maybe they looked and they said, hey, we learned from our parents, but we're going to see right into verse 4, the apple doesn't really fall far from the tree. What started in a glorious victory quickly falls into inglorious vitriol or hatred speech that is just directed with the intent to hurt, to tear down. They don't like it. They're just vitriolic. They are angry. It comes back. The sins of the father are passed down, so to speak. Look what happens. Follow with me in verse 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor. Now we're going to pick up 21 verse 4, picks up where numbers 20 verse 21 left off. Where they're at the base of Mount Hor, then Moses and Aaron and Eliezer go up, and Moses and Eliezer come down. Whether the, the Canaanites battle them when they're up at Mount Hor or somewhere in there, we don't, we don't exactly know. Some commentators have speculated that's why the people went to the Lord and they didn't have Moses because this happened when Moses and Eliezer and Aaron were up on the mountain so the people had to do something and they responded by going to the Lord. We don't, we don't exactly know. But we know verse 4 picks up from them leaving the, the base of Mount Hor and journeying by the way of the Red Sea. Now you're going to see on that map, they're going to go down. Remember, they can't go over to Edom from the top blue line. They can't go to Edom. So they're going to go down that little blue journey right in the middle there toward Ezion-Geber. This is called the Way of the Red Sea. They were making their way to a little inlet on the Gulf of the Red Sea there. And they were going to go that direction in order to go around Edom because they weren't able to go through Edom. And while they're doing that, they, uh, in order to compass Edom, to go around it, the soul of the people was much distressed. So they had to go the long way around, and the people became extremely discouraged because of, look what it says, they came discouraged because of the way. Now, is that talking about the discouragement that they faced because we're walking back in endless circles? We just had this victory going toward the promised land. We just beat these Canaanites at Hormah. And now we're turning around and going southward away from the promised land. Why don't we just push through? Let's have the victory. Let's go forward. Why are we doing this? We should march the other way. Is it because of that? Is it because uh, the way was very difficult? Is it, is it that? It could be a combination of both. We don't know exactly why, but we know it's because of the way. In fact, you know Lawrence of Arabia? Maybe you've seen the movie with Peter O'Toole or you've studied or you've, you remember about Lawrence of Arabia back in the early 1900s who went uh, as a British, uh, British uh, officer, ended up down in this area, down in Arabia and through the Middle East there, going through with his men who were really stalwart, strong men, learning the land, learning the cultures, he said this about this exact path, this exact way. He said, this is a place of hopelessness and sadness, deeper than all the open desert we had crossed. There was something sinister. 
something actively evil in this snake-devoted land, proliferate uh, with water, salt water, barren palms and bushes, which were neither, uh, which, which neither served for grazing nor for firewood. He talked about this place was just despair. It was not a place where you found hope. And this is where the Jews are now marching toward and through in order to get around to hopefully go back to this promised land. But they've been wandering for 40 years now. They're having hardships. They're having battles. How are they going to respond? What are they going to do? Sadly, the apple falls and it's right there. As the hardships increase, look what the people do. They revert to what they had learned from their parents and their community before. Verse number five. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. If you're like me, I'm like, I'm at the point now where I'm like, couldn't Jews, couldn't you give me some new material? Couldn't you have done something different, please? Wouldn't you, you know, I'm tired of almost saying, guess what? They complained again. Guess what? They strove against the leadership. Guess what? They were angry with God. Guess what? They didn't trust him. It's like, ah. But you think about it. Think about what they did. Israel speaks against Moses and God. Like the sins of Moses, we talked about this last time, it's very understandable that why they would be frustrated, isn't it? I mean, if you get a guy like Lawrence of Arabia saying this place is desolate, and he's a pretty stalwart guy, strong, and he's saying it's bad, he's resilient, and he's saying it's rough, I'm like, oh, you can, you can understand, but that doesn't make it excusable. Our sin, we can't make excuses for our sin. Might be able to justify it in our mind for some reason, but it doesn't make it excusable. Notice the similarity of their complaints to that previous generation. You brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. There's a good chunk of this generation that was born in the wilderness. They they were not even in. Think about it. We're talking 40 years after. There's a whole bunch of people that have been born in 40 years in, in the wilderness And yet they're all like, oh, you took us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. There is no bread here. Neither is there any water. All the things we've heard over and over and over again. Look at the end of verse 5, though. It's an interesting, they they add on. And our soul loathes this light or this worthless bread. We're tired of manna. It's it's worthless. It's, It's no good to us. And you think about their statements here. When you think about them and God, what, is, what does it show us? Israel's become impatient with God. They're like, come on, why are we not going that? Why are we going a different way? They, it's a long way. We're going away from the land. This way is insane. Why are you bringing us out here to die? They were questioning God's plan. They, they're looking and basically they're accusing God of having a lousy plan. You don't have food. You don't have water. This plan, God, stinks. Now, we would never find ourselves saying that, right? But that's what they're saying. But think about it. Have any of you thought, God, this 2020, 2021 thing, it stinks. I think you goofed up. We may never say it out loud that way, but if you're like me, those thoughts have definitely been on my heart at times. God, do you really know what you're doing here? Because right now, there are moments, I mean, 
I feel like everything I want to stand for and I believe I should stand for God is being written into orders and laws and everything that I can't stand for any of that, Lord. You sure you got the right people in government? You sure you didn't make a mistake here, God? You sure that everything that's going on with all this pandemic stuff, Lord, you, you sure you got it right? We'd never, we'd never do any of that, right? None of us would ever act like the Jews. Ever. That would be ridiculous. You know, don't we find ourselves doing that? What else did they do? They're doubting God's ability to provide, to protect. We're right back to where they were. God's given them daily bread. God has provided water from a rock. For times, he gives them quail for, for meat. He's provided all these things. And yet, they're looking and saying, there's no new food. There's no new water. God, are you going to be able to really provide? This way is hard. We're doubting whether or not you can provide for us in difficult times. Again, we would never say that, would we? We would never, God, do you know what I'm going through? Can you really, are you really going to provide? Are you going to help me out, God? But looking and understanding that God's provision and protection are good. They're denigrating God's provision. Have you ever found yourself all of a sudden, God provides something and then you're sort of like, I wish it was a little bit nicer. He provides a car for you because you're really, oh, I wish I would have got leather interior, you know. This isn't really, it, it seems extreme. And yet, do we at times look down upon the blessings that God brings into our life? Have we missed some of the blessings of, of 2020? And looking and saying, God, God, your provisions are just terrible. The opportunities that some have had to spend more time with family. To have, reflect on God's word more. To, to be in prayer more. Having some of those, and we, we get frustrated. But look what they say. They say they're going to call manna. Now remember, manna in the Bible is often called bread from heaven. This is a divinely given pastry. Well, wafer that becomes a pastry, that becomes food for them. But they're calling it worthless. Futile. It's, it's, it's loathsome. And they're denigrating what God has provided. They're not counting their blessings they're being frustrated with God's blessings in their life. Now, we look through, and one of the guys that I, I tend to read sometimes or listen to on numbers, he said this. He said, they don't acknowledge God's power. They don't appreciate his generosity. They don't recognize his mercy. They don't accept his sovereignty. And they don't trust his word. All this is rolled up into this one verse. That's how sinful their sin is. And when we look at them and we say, oh, I would never be that person. I think before we point fingers, we should look in the mirror. Because they have profanely, disrespectfully, and irreverently spoken against God. And looking in the mirror, the reflection, I have to ask myself, have I done the same? Have I hurt God's testimony this year? Have I exalted him? Or have I chided against him? Have I been frustrated by what he says? And this passage, as I look through it, reminds me of me and my sin. I'm not very creative in my sin. I'm like the dog who goes back to his vomit. I don't like have, you know, 4,000 sins that I just, you know, pick and choose. I have things that I struggle with. You have sins you struggle with. And what do we do? We're not very creative, are we? We go right back to where we were. 
just like the Jews, right back to complaining. This is what they do. They're struggling with that sin, that lack of trust, the complaining, the bickering, the murmuring. But don't I do the same thing? As I look in the mirror, those sins I struggle with personally as art, I tend to do the exact same thing. We find those patterns, and we, unless we work to break those patterns, unless we seek to have victory through Christ, we find ourselves doing the exact same thing over and over again. However patient my God is with me, however gracious he is, I still find myself repeating the same old cycle of sin. And this passage reminds me of it, even to the next generation. This passage, it terrifies me because of my example to my children and to even those around me. But specifically here, you have a next generation who have learned from their parents. What have they learned? They've learned to complain when things get hard, complain against Moses, complain against God. Here's the things that they complained about. Where did they learn them? More than likely the same place my kids learn my complaining at home. You know, in the tent. Oh, we don't have food. We don't have water again. What's the matter with Moses? Where's Aaron going? You know, in that same aspect. What sinful tendencies, habits are my kids picking up from me? What are they learning in their home, our home, because of the way I live, the way I act, the things I choose to do, the way I respond to crises, the way I respond to political leaders. How, how do, what are they picking up? What are they learning? In this past year, with all the hardships and all the turmoil, what have my kids learned about? Have they learned about uh, how to be disrespectful and, and talk belligerently and rudely about political leaders and authorities in our country? Have they learned how to respond when you respectfully disagree and how to do it in a gracious way. Not saying I have to agree with everything that's being done in in our society, but have they learned how how they should respond in an appropriate way, in a Christ-like way? Or have have they learned how to be, you know, rude and belligerent and arrogant? You know, have they learned, have they learned how to be respectful of other people this year? Or have they learned how to be disrespectful? What have they learned from me? And this terrifies me because I know me. I know my thoughts. I know the way I act when no one else other than my family is around. I know what I need to work on and what are my kids picking up? Do they, my trust in God, my respect for authority, my belief in God's providence, my understanding is of God's provision, and it goes on and on. They're learning from me and not just them, but the community of believers. They're learning from me and they're learning from you. It's not just me because I'm a pastor. It's all of us. Others are learning. Other believers are learning from us as believers. And what are we teaching to the new generations coming up? How are we responding? This passage reminds me just how much I'm like the Israelites. We've never questioned God, have we? We have never thrown questions back in his face. What are you doing, Lord? Do you know what you're doing in my life, in my world, etc.? We never question the way God's working in the world, do we? And you get to learn the hard way. Well, that's what Israel ended up doing. I look at all that happening and say, wow, I'm a lot like the Jews, but I don't want to learn the hard way. I want to learn the lessons from Scripture and put them to practice in my life so that I don't have to face some of the judgments that God brings. So I don't have to face the hardships of life 
that may come, but I want to deal with them. I want to learn sooner. I want to learn the easy way, not the hard way. Now, we have learned in the book of Numbers already that rebellion brings about judgment and death. Okay, we, if you haven't learned that, go back and watch all the videos again because it comes up all the time. They rebel, there's punishment. They rebel, there's death. There's plagues. There's, it's, it just is there. This situation is not going to be any different. So what happens? You have a situation here where there's just irony. They are going to face hardship. And what's going to happen? The people complain about their adversities, how hard, how difficult it is. And what does God do? He brings greater adversity. It's basically like my ways, my things that I plan for you, they're not difficult. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You can do this if your perspective is correct. You can go in the right direction. You can handle the trials that I've given to you. But they complain, and he brings about greater adversity. The children of Israel should have learned contentment and gratitude. They should have learned trust from the little trials in the wilderness. They may seem huge to us, but that was their life. They should have learned that along the way, and yet they didn't. They needed a harder way to teach them these important life lessons. Because if they were going to go on a conquest of the land, if they were going to go with God into the promised land, they were going to need to trust him, to trust his word, to trust his provision, to not be complaining against the authorities, but to be working together and going forward. And they hadn't learned this lesson yet. So God brings about a harder lesson, a harder way for them to learn this lesson. He brings about those fiery serpents. Look what happens. Verse 6. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of Israel died. And that's literally all it says. Now, Lawrence of Arabia, look at those snakes, by the way. Just, I don't know about you, these, these three snakes here, they, uh, the top one, cobra, which is in that region. Uh, the bottom left one is a viper, a sand viper from that area. And then the one on the, the bottom right there is, uh, it's called the puff adder which are what most, many commentaries think was the main snake involved. But that, those things are nasty. And if you look at the wounds, especially from the puff adder, the burning sensations, the, the eating away of the flesh that it causes, it's, 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 it's gross. Like I, oh, I struggled looking at it and just seeing that. But there were, there were snakes all over this land. Lawrence of Arabia said this about that region again. He, he went on in his journal. We encountered hooded, hooded vipers and cobras and black snakes in such great number that the men feared to walk at night. These were like military strong guys who went all over this region all the time. But they said in this area, the bravest of my men were unmanned by the multitude of poisonous snakes. It was not a fun place to be. And yet don't think... That, okay, it was just a bunch of snakes and, you know, God really didn't do anything. No, the snakes, these fiery serpents, and the idea of fiery is not that they were on fire. They were like blazing and you could, you know, were, were lit on, you know, with fire. But it was the idea of their bite and what they caused, caused burning of the flesh. Uh, a pain that, that radiated like a burning sensation. This was a direct act of God. This was dealing with judgment upon rebellion and sin. And God brought these serpents from the, from the region, I'm sure, maybe from other places too, but he divinely brought them into the camp to begin to inflict pain, to teach a hard lesson, and to judge the people. Now, 
what's interesting is the one who is the answer to their prayers, who is their protection, their provision, is the exact same person they're complaining about. They complain about God, and yet God is the one who's providing. God is the one who's going to be able to protect them. And they do that. And oftentimes in our life, our crosses, our trials, our hard providences, the hard things that God allows into our lives, they only get heavier if we become bitter about them. They consume us. And I fear that's what's happened over the last year. Is the hard providences that God has allowed into our country, into our county, into our church, that we may have struggled with being bitter about them. And getting enraged and allowing bitterness to creep in, it dulls us spiritually. It consumes our thoughts and our minds so that we're not thinking about God. We're thinking about everything else in our life and our world. We're researching more on what's the next corona person going to say than we are researching the scriptures. And bitterness consumes and it just gets heavier and heavier. Maybe it's time for a lot of us to just say this is where we're at right now and God has providentially brought it in and I need to work and figure out how to graciously live in some of these situations and figure out what is God trying to teach me? What is God trying to teach us in, in these hard providences? What would you do? So how would the people respond? What are they going to do when all of this comes in? The track record is what? Hardships come. What did the Jews do in the book of Numbers? They complain. So is that what they're going to do? That has been the telltale. That is the MO, their mode of operation. This is how they function. And yet we see that God is going to use this hard trial, this hard way for their well-being. What are they going to do? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but it may seem to be rolling down the hill a little bit. And it may have bounced a little bit away because the people don't come to Moses and complain. In fact, they, they teach us a really good practical way to handle some of these hardships. As much as, as, much as COVID is brutal, I'm thankful that it's not fiery serpents crawling into my bed and biting me in the middle of the night. But what, what are we learning? What do, they, what do they do? They have a different tone all of a sudden in verse 7. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, if they didn't speak against him, they didn't argue, they didn't chide, they didn't contend, they come and they speak to Moses. And they're going to say this. We have to repent. We have to spend time in prayer. They say, Moses, we acknowledge our sin. We have sinned. And they, they're, they're not even just going to keep it general. They get specific with their attitude, with the words that they've said. We, they, they specifically acknowledge, we have spoken against you and the Lord. Lord, we've sinned and we've done it by this way. And they go to God and they're going to be repentant. They're going to, they're going to go to Moses and in doing so, they acknowledge a, a mediation, a mediator. They pray unto the Lord. He, they say, Moses, would you go to the Lord and pray for us? Would you be that one who goes between? We have a greater mediator, don't we, in Jesus Christ, who says that if you confess your sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive those sins, that he says that he will remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. 
And maybe it's time that we look as, as our individuals, maybe as a church, maybe as a country, and is that we need to be in, in repentance. And repentance doesn't say, I need to tell the whole world they need to repent. Repentance starts with me. It starts with you, individually, going to God, confessing those sins that are, that are hurting us. Acknowledge, it is an acknowledgement of God's merciful deliverance. Look what they say. They say, pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. They understood they could do nothing about their problem. They could do nothing about the serpents that were all around them. They needed the Lord to graciously and mercifully deliver them. That he would take away. And what does Moses do? At the end of that verse, he says, it says, and Moses prayed for the people. The response in the tone of this new generation was different in the moment of hardship. They learned the lesson. It was a hard way to learn this lesson. But that the deliverance was going to come from God, not from themselves, not just through Moses, but through the Lord. They had to trust in him. But there was not just, okay, words of assent, Okay, this is what we need to do, God. But there was an activity of faith. It wasn't just enough. They had to completely, uh, th- there, was, there was a difference in what they were going to do. They had to act differently. God doesn't remove the hardship. This is an interesting point about this passage. We don't know how long the snakes, the snakes were around. But God doesn't say, I'm really glad that you repented. And you're absolutely right. Let me take away all the consequences. no. He leaves the consequences there to teach this lesson, to continue it. The snakes don't go away. What happens, though, is he provides a way for them to endure the hardship. And how do they endure this hardship? Moses is told to do what? God says, okay, Moses, here's what I want you to do. Verse 8, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten... When he looks upon it, shall live. They've already repented of their sins. Now they have these hardships in their life. And there are going to be hardships in our life. Even after we repent and ask for prayer for salvation, even as believers, there are moments that divine providences and hardships come into our lives. And God says, I will give you the ability to endure them that you will have the strength, that no uh, temptation shall take you which, um, and overtake you, that you will be able to endure those trials. He says, I provided a way. How do, you, how do we get through the hard trials? How did they get through the hard trials? What were they to do? They were to turn away from their own ways, their own self, and they were to look and live. Look to what? The serpent on the pole, which we know later on becomes this picture of Jesus Christ. How do we endure hardship? It is not through looking to man. It is not through figuring it out ourselves. It is through looking to Christ. That is how we endure. That is how we live through difficult times and hardships. In order to live, one had to look on the pole and the serpent. It was a choice of allegiance. It was not just this quick ascent and okay, I'll do a couple things. It was a decision by the Jews to look to the one who had authority. 
It's interesting. Where did they always want to go back to? They wanted to go back to Egypt. Back in Egypt, snakes were worshipped and revered there. That's where they want to keep turning to. Why did you bring us from such a wonderful place? They were familiar with snakes. They were familiar with that, that idea of snakes having authority and power. Remember, I mean, there's a reason when Moses drops a snake on the ground, it's a big deal. The snakes were, were important. And then when his snake devoured the other snakes, it was a, it was a showing of the power of Moses' God in Israel. The snakes were revered. You ever, you ever notice on Pharaoh's, it's called a nemes, his hat, his crown? What did it always have on it? It had snakes on it. They saw that. Could it be that the one who revered and worshipped the snake, the one that kept him them under bondage, is really the one they wanted to return to? They wanted to go back to that guy? And that's what you keep hearing. Do they really desire to turn to the pain of, and sting, the burning of bondage? Is that where they wanted to go back to? Or would they rather choose to turn from that and look to Christ and live? It was a decision of allegiance. It is no more go back to Egypt. It is, are you going to want to keep going back to Egypt, to these snakes where they love these things? Or are you going to turn and follow me? And trust in my providences and trust in my provisions and my protection through your hard times. It was a decision of allegiance to follow God through those hard times, to look to him and to live. Israel has been pressed so hard through this trial that they have nowhere to run but to God. And they understood that. And that's what God wanted them to understand. They should have picked that up through the wilderness. I'm the one who provides. I'm the one who's protected. I'm the one who's given you all of this stuff and kept you through these last 40 years. And he didn't learn it. And he had he backed him into a corner, had to teach him the hard way to say, hey, the only way to live is to look to Christ. The only way to live is to look to God. And they should have learned that. P.T. Forsyth, he's a, he was a theologian back in the late 1800s, early 1900s in Scotland. He talked about uh, this passage, and he talked about a, use the illustration of a joiner. A joiner, at that time, the, the, the word was synonymous with a carpenter, or the idea of maybe a cabinet maker or a trim carpenter, somebody who would often have to put pieces of wood together in a, in a way. And he said this, he said, the joiner, when he glues together two boards, it should say, uh, keeps them tightly clamped until the cement sets. So with our calamities and depressions and disappointments, uh, crush us into closer contact with God, the pressure on us is kept until the soul's union with God is set. So that God, like a divine carpenter, will press us together with him, uh, press him together, press us together to himself in trials until we stick to him. He said sometimes those pressures the clamps coming together, pushing those boards together until you can't tell the difference between the two boards. They're inseparable because the glue hardens them. He says that's oftentimes how our hardships work. Our difficulties, our trials are there to push us closer to God so that when people see us responding and they see how we act, they see Christ. They don't see art flying off the handle. They see Christ. They don't see art grumbling and complaining. They see Christ. 
They don't see our bickering and causing dissension. They see Christ. It's a hard lesson to learn. And yet through hardships, the only way to live is to look through Jesus Christ. It's no wonder, you know, they use, we use that symbol in the paramedic world of the, the snake on the pole because it's a place of rescue. It's a place of refuge to turn to. But their life through faith was made possible because of God's merciful provision. Verse number nine, and Moses made the serpent of brass and put it on a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. The solution that God provides has no human explanation whatsoever. Absolutely none. There was nothing magical about this poll. It was all about turning and trusting in God, looking to him through your hardship, not to yourself, trusting in his way. This snake pictures God's just judgment on Israel and their sin. They see it there. When they turn, they're remembering this is there because we complained, because we did not trust, because we were angry against. It is a picture of God's just judgment on our sin, but we are looking to his way in order to be able to do it. There was no sacrifice that needed to happen. It was simply to look. And the word look here means to gaze with intention. It's not just a, oh, I got bit. Okay, yeah, I looked. All right, no problem. I'll just go on my way. It was, a, it was, a, it was an act of the will. It was to turn and gaze intently. It caused the reflection. It caused them to remember that why this is happening is because of our sinful choices. And we needed God's provision to help us live through the judgment that was necessary upon our sin. I look at all of that and I start thinking about it. They had to choose to look away from themselves and their situation to God. Israel has nothing to do with the forgiving the saving power that God is going to display. It is all of God. No wonder, when you think about this, no wonder Christ uses this account to speak of looking to him in our greatest life crisis. In all of the life crises we have, the greatest life crisis we have is dealing with our sin as an unbeliever. And what does he do? Go with me to a very familiar passage as we wrap up. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Jesus is speaking to a religious leader, a man who is devout, a man who loved, the, loved God, but he was lost because of his sin. His name was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is secretly meeting with Jesus by night. And Jesus is explaining him to him how to be born again. He explains that your, your greatest life crisis, the greatest hardship you're facing, is that your sin is going to keep you from a relationship with our holy God. That you must be born not just physically, but you must be born again, born of the Spirit. There has to be a spiritual birth within you. And, and he struggles with it. He's like, but how do, I, how do I do this? And he wrestles with the philosophy of what's happening. And Jesus talks to him about being born by the Spirit. And he says, hey, it is so important that you understand that because of your sin, you cannot enter into heaven. And because of our sinfulness and because of our struggles, we needed somebody to be that mediator, the, the lamb, the one to go between, to shed blood, to be the one who would take the place that we could look to and we could trust in. It made no sense. In fact, you think about it, 
Jesus has explained that you have to be born again. Nicodemus struggled with that concept. Remember what 1 Corinthians 1.18 says? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. When people sometimes first hear about the saving grace of Jesus, they're like, it's too easy. It's too, it makes no sense to me. I should have to work for it. I should have to do this. I should have to be a good enough person and all those things we can't do. It was the same with the, the snake on the pole. The Jews had nothing to do with their saving or forgiving. It was all about turning and trusting in God's word and God's promise to look intently upon him. And so uh, Jesus, as he is speaking to Nicodemus, look at what he says in verse 14. John chapter 3, verse 14. We always jump to verse 16, but the context is really interesting. And And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's three different times in the Gospel of John where it talks about him being lifted up. And we know that's going to be him on the cross. But just like Moses lifted up that pole with the serpent on it in the wilderness, that if they would look to, that, look to it and live, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus uses this illustration from a Jewish historical point that Nicodemus understood. He would have known. And he said, eternal life is only made possible through God and his plan. I'm going to have to be lifted up, Christ says. And you're going to have to turn, not trust in anything else, but turn and look to me. It may seem simple. It may seem foolish to you. But God says, this is my way. In fact, look at what he says in verse 15. He goes on, he says, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Why did the Son of Man have to be lifted up? Because we needed somebody to pay for our sins, to die in our place. And if we believe on him, we will not perish. Remember, rebellion always equals death. Sin equals death. That is the ultimate consequence of sin and rebellion. And we, by nature, are sinners. Each and every one of us has sinned. So therefore, we are going to perish. But if we want to experience life, eternal life, we must look to the one who is going to be lifted up, Jesus Christ. How is it possible that the one who lifted up could save us? Verse 16 takes a little bit further. This is the one we often see. See it at signs all over the place. But keep it in context. Even as the Son of Man is lifted up, and if we look to him, we shall live. Why did this happen? How do we know that it's going to happen? For God so loved the world. He loved us. That's why this is all made possible. That this plan is set up, that someone is going to be lifted up on the cross to die in our place for our sins so that we did not have to perish, but we could have everlasting life. Who was that person? God loved us so much that he gave his one and only, his only begotten son, that whoever believes, who turns and looks to Jesus Christ, repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ, whoever believes in him will not perish, but they will have everlasting life. Just as the people had to look at the brass serpent to live, you too must simply trust on God's word of promise 
his word of promise that if you look to Christ and him crucified, you can have eternal life. You can be born again. You can experience salvation from your sins, from hell, and have an eternal home in heaven with God. If you're not sure of that, I encourage you, send us a message. Call us at the church. We want to share with you how you can know for certain that you are on your way to heaven. Because as we study and we learn from Numbers, from John chapter 3, our faith is to look up to him. The songwriter wrote it well, my faith looks up to the O Lamb of Calvary. For us as believers, if you are saved, you're going through hardships and difficulties, look to Christ. He's the only way through it. If you've never looked to Christ because of your greatest hardship of sin and eternal damnation, please accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Turn from your sin. Turn and trust to Christ. Look and live. Look and live. Lord, I pray that you would help us in our hard times and our difficulties to look to you. Thank you for the pointedness, the reflection of this passage in our lives. Lord, help us to trust you through our hardships. And Lord, for some who may not know you as Savior, I pray that they would trust you for the saving grace of Jesus Christ, Lord. Help them to get saved. Lord, thank you for this time together. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a great day.